You're listening to the Northwestern Campus Ministry Podcast from Northwestern College in Orange City, Iowa. Northwestern Campus Ministry exists to send students out as those rooted, built up, and established in Christ for God's glory and for the sake of the world. Thanks for listening and enjoy this recent message from our Christian Formation Program. We're so blessed to have uh, a guest with us today. Uh, Her name is Tessa Afshar. Uh, She was born in the Middle East and lived there for 14 years and transitioned to England where she went to boarding school and then eventually moved to the United States. She holds a Master's of Divinity from Yale. She's served in various women and prayer ministries over the last 20 years as an ordained minister in the Congregational Church. Uh, She most recently has transitioned to being a full-time writer and speaker. She's actually won a number of literary awards as a speaker and writer. She's uh, been published in the weekly best-selling author of biblical inspiration, historical fiction, uh, she's won an INSPI, uh, not an SB, but an INSPI, uh, won a Christie Award, uh, the New Author of the Year Award by the Family Fiction Sponsored Reader's Choice Awards, and most recently she wrote uh, a book study, a Bible study based on the book of Ruth, which won her the 2021 ECPA Christian Book Award, and so we are very privileged to have Tessa Ashfar, Ashfar with us today, uh, bringing a word from the Lord. So would you join me in giving her a warm raider welcome? to be here worshiping with you. Weren't they amazing? And uh, you probably listen to them every day and you take them for granted, but let me tell you, they feed your soul with that beautiful worship. I want to thank Dr. Finney and Mark for inviting me to be here. Um, Loving being with you all. Uh, Dr. Finney probably hasn't told you, uh, he and I went to school uh, for about three years while he was uh, doing his graduate studies, and he's too humble to tell you, but he's really brilliant. He was a very gifted student. Uh, Unlike me, I was just an average student, which just goes to show you that with God, even if you're academically average, you can have the most incredible, exciting, and fulfilling call in your life. I suspect some of you heard what you needed to hear today. You can close your eyes now. The rest of you, uh, (laughs) I have a little more to say. Um, Mark had asked me to share my story of faith with you, but I thought that I would start with the woman that Josh just read about, uh, the woman with the issue of blood, because there is an aspect of her life that really connects with my own experience. So, of course, the first thing that captured me about this passage was the fact that uh, Peter is so grumpy with Jesus when Jesus says, who touched me? He, he comes to a dead stop. See, they're moving. They're moving very fast. They're moving urgently. Because what we didn't read was right before this, there's a man who comes. And he drops at Jesus' feet like a stone. And he says, I have a daughter who's dying. So the situation is urgent because nobody can help this girl, this 12-year-old child except for Jesus. So they're all walking very quickly to try and avoid death, to try and help this child. So when Jesus stops dead in his tracks, Peter is a little um, perplexed. And he says, you know, why, why are you stopping, essentially? And Jesus said, someone touched me. So you can hear the ire in Peter's voice when he says, everybody is pressing in on you. What do you mean who touched me? In other words, get going. 
One of the things I love about Jesus is that he doesn't care uh, how others are experiencing the world around him. He's too tuned into God. So other people's vexation, irritation, and expectations don't move him. I don't know about you, but I find sometimes when the expectations on me are really powerful, that my whole being turns toward the expectation. But Jesus refuses to move, even though there's a child's life at stake. He says, no, I felt power go from me. In some translations, it says healing power. So in other words, he knows someone has already been healed. And he also knows that there is a child who's dying. Now, to me, that doesn't make any sense at all, that explanation. If someone's already been healed, it doesn't matter who it is. Wouldn't you want to, like, urgently run and find that child who's desperately depending on you in order to live? So I had to look at this passage a little more, and I found two reasons why Jesus lingered. You see, this woman had been sick for 12 years with a bleeding disease, which made her untouchable according to those very strict religious laws. That meant that if anybody touched her, they also became unclean. If they touched even the cushion that she sat on, they also became unclean. And they had to go through a very tiresome series of cleansing rituals in order to be able to rejoin society. So they looked at her as in herself just a bother and irritation. And they looked at her as having been uh, cursed by God. So she had lived 12 years as an outcast. Probably no one had hugged her, no one had given her a kiss. It feels a little bit like the past year and a half to me because I live in a different part of the country. You all are sitting so close, no mask. I'm looking at you like I want to kind of pass out just looking at you because it's very different where I come from. But she had lived 12 years like this in shame and public humiliation. And at that moment, I think Jesus recognizes that she has received a physical healing, but there are two kinds of healings that she still has not received. One is this social healing. So uh, she, he won't budge, and she knows the gig is up, so she comes and she falls at his feet, and she uh, essentially says, this is what I did, because she was too ashamed to ask Jesus to... Uh, heal her. She really didn't believe that he would for her. Like she felt that she was beyond his grace and compassion. And instead of telling her off, what he does is in front of everybody, he affirms her. Not only does he say, you are healed. So for 12 years, publicly, she's been told she's sick and an outcast. So he publicly says, you are healed. But he also publicly affirms her. He says, your faith has healed you. So he replaces the shame and the humiliation that she has experienced for 12 years with that public affirmation. Now, there's a second thing that he does for her that he doesn't do for anybody else in the Gospels. He calls her daughter. And he doesn't call anyone daughter in a personal way anywhere else in the Gospels. And to me, that's significant because Jesus never has any throwaway words. And so I wanted to know why. What is the significance of that? Why is he delaying the healing of a little girl in order to call her daughter? And 
the Bible is silent on this issue, but you see that there's a juxtaposition of two scenes in all of the Gospels about this. That is, Jairus, who's a father, he comes and he falls at Jesus' feet and he says, my 12-year-old girl is sick, and he begs Jesus to come and help. So there's a father there asking for his daughter. And then there's this woman who's been sick also for 12 years. And Jesus is the hinge between these 12-year histories. But for this woman, there's no father. There's no one falling at Jesus' feet and saying, come and help my little girl. And it's not because she's an adult, because in a lot of the healing uh, accounts, what you find is either parents or relatives or friends bring their their, their sick friends to Jesus. And yet here we are. And there's no one there for this woman, specifically no father, as juxtaposed with this other story. And I think that there's a father wound for her, that it's not accidental that the father isn't there. I don't know what that wound is, whether he's abandoned her, whether he was never there for her. Maybe he's dead. Maybe he just thinks that she isn't worth his while. Whatever the reason is, Jesus decides to step into that wound, daughter, he calls her. But you have to understand that by calling her daughter, he's saying, I am now your father. And according to the Bible, the qualities of a father, the qualities of Father God are the qualities that every one of us desperately needs. So daughter, he calls her, and what he's saying is, I will never abandon you. I will never reject you. I delight in you. I rejoice over you. I will provide for you. I will protect you. I will not harm you. I will not disregard you. I will be with you every step of your life. And with that one word, he enters into the shape of her wound, that father wound, and he pours into it all the affirmation of fatherhood that God brings to our lives. Now, it's as important to him, this healing of her wound, this healing of her social wound, this a healing of her emotional father wound, it's as important to him as the life of a 12-year-old girl because remember, he's delaying all of that in order to give someone who's already received physical healing these two things. And sometimes, you know, we think that, oh, this is not all that important and we shove it down and we don't bring it to God because we don't really believe that he cares. But I want you to know, That if you don't understand, if you don't grasp, if you're not walking into the depth of the fatherhood of God, that you're not receiving the fullness of what God has for you. This is a wound that I um, really could relate to intimately. I grew up in the Middle East, as Mark told you. And for the first 14 years of my life, I grew up uh, in a nominally Muslim home. So my parents didn't really pray five times a day. My mother didn't wear the covering. And um, we believed in God, but we didn't really follow Islam very deeply. My father was a physician. He was a radiologist. He was also a general in the army of the Shah. So he was not home very often. I always knew my father loved me. 
But I also knew that he wasn't there very often for me. And that said something about me more than about him. What it said about me was that I wasn't worth his time. As a child, that's what I understood. So I had a father wound. And then when I was about 13, my parents divorced. And eventually, my mother, my sister, and I moved to England. And I started attending a girls' school, uh, a girls' boarding school. And this meant that, of course, I had left a lot of things and lost a lot of things. I lost my home. I lost my friends. I lost my school. I lost my food, which, by the way, Middle Eastern food, oh my. And... um, I lost my language. Uh, As you can tell, I'm not from around here. I've never lost my accent. But um, I lost my dog. But maybe the most difficult thing was that I lost my father almost entirely. Because my father had to stay in the Middle East and continue his practice. And very shortly after we left, there was some political upheaval. There was a revolution. And that meant that he very rarely could travel to come and see me. Now, this was before the days of, um, well, social media and text and Zoom and even email. It was just horrifying, barbaric. But um, uh, so the only way we had of communicating when he couldn't come to see me was uh, through the phone, which was very expensive, or old-fashioned letters. Uh, Have you ever seen a stamp, by the way? So that's what we used to use in order to communicate. Uh, But, you know, in my child's heart, in, in my young adult heart, the thing that, again, entered very deeply was if my father really loved me, he would have overcome anything. He would have moved heaven and earth to be able to come and be with me more and, and break through all of the things that nations and politics and uh, finances prevented, that he would somehow make it so that he could see me. And so, again, the, the wound that entered my heart, the father wound, the shape of that wound was... I am not worth that kind of sacrifice. And uh, so, uh, while I was at this boarding school for girls, every Sunday we had to go to a chapel like this uh, on Sunday morning. It was not a Christian school, but uh, boarding schools in England are extremely traditional. And that's what you do on Sundays is you go to church. So because I was from a different faith background, I was told that I could sit in the balcony. So yeah, by the way, those of you who were sitting in the balcony, uh, the ones who were not Christians had to sit there back then in, in my experience. So um, that's not the case here, but anyway. <laughs> So, so I was told that I could sit in the balcony and read my own faith book, which was the Quran. Now, the Quran is written in Arabic, and I don't speak Arabic. I speak Persian. And there's no use, as much as for us Christians, reading the Bible in the language of our hearts. It's actually really wonderful. And I assume that some of you are going to, at some point in your lives, help with the translation of some language or another. But I will tell you that the Quran you have to read in the Arabic, or it's not efficacious in your faith. So I would go to the balcony and I would read romance novels. (laughs) Yeah, so I didn't hear the gospel. Uh, I I learned a few things about love, but I don't think that's quite what Jesus had in mind. But I, I, I did kind of grow to really love romance novels at that point. Anyway, so, so I kind of uh, 
grew up in the Christian West, in England and in the US, and never really hearing the gospel, never becoming a Christian. But I was going through a very difficult season in my life. Because you see, because of this father wound in my heart, every time, even in a romantic relationship, a serious romantic relationship, if someone broke up with me or walked away, it pressed into that wound of rejection, that wound of abandonment. It pressed into it more deeply so that I just broke apart much deeper than I needed to because it was building on top of another wound. And so I was going through a season where a very serious relationship had had broken apart and I was falling into pieces. And during that time, I had a dream. And in that dream, I was by the Sea of Galilee and I saw a man walking toward me. And I knew in the dream that this man was Jesus. So I was really curious to see him. uh, Because of course, again, I had never read the Bible or gone to church Uh, without reading the romance novels. And uh, so I wanted to see what he looked like. And as he came closer, I have to confess to you with some embarrassment that my first response to Jesus when I saw him in my dream was disappointment. You see, my only experience with Jesus had been through two movies that I used to watch as a kid in England during Easter and Christmas. And in both versions, the Jesus of those movies was really handsome and good looking. Yeah, the Jesus of my dream was kind of plain and really homely. And so my first response was, that's Jesus? Like God couldn't do any better for his son? (laughs) And it wasn't until about a year later when I started finally reading the Bible where I would see in Isaiah that really the promised one was not going to be that much to look at because God's standards are different. He doesn't judge by the outside. And besides, what he thinks is pretty and good looking is not exactly our standards. And so, um, so yeah, so that was how superficial I was. And I brought that into the dream with Jesus. I was like, oh, that's Jesus. Well, he comes closer and now I can see his eyes in the dream. And I will tell you that I forgot all about that superficial standard. And I almost fell to my knees because I saw two things in the eyes of Jesus. The first thing I saw was such love as I had never experienced in my life. It was love that swallowed me in grace and acceptance and affection and knowing. Now, my family were a loving family. I grew up always being told I was loved and receiving hugs and all that. But it was nothing like this. It was unimaginable. And the second thing I saw alongside that love was a power I had never experienced. See, power in this world is always broken. It's diminished. Uh, It's uh, bent. But the power in Jesus' eyes was pure and it was indomitable. And I knew that whatever promise he made to me, Whatever he said to me, no matter how impossible it seemed, would come to pass. That is how much I could rely on his power. That if he wanted to help me, nothing on this earth could stop me. And in the dream, he asked me to follow him, and I did. And I knew that he wasn't saying, just follow me for a walk around the Lake of Galilee. I knew he meant for the rest of my life. And when I woke up in this very broken time of my life, I had peace the likes of which I had never experienced for three days, unshakable peace. But I was not yet a Christian because I still didn't understand the gospel. I still didn't understand that there was a response from me that was needed. 
But some stronghold in me broke through that dream. And so for the first time, whatever stronghold that I had received in that Islamic world was broken enough that I could receive and hear the gospel. So um, shortly after the dream, I was, I was in England at the time, I returned to the U.S., and now suddenly, for the first time, I was surrounded by Christians who shared the gospel with me. They invited me to church. They gave me a Bible. They, um, they loved up on me. They were crazy, those Christians. They invited me to their homes. They fed me. Uh, They invited me to Bible study. I just thought they were nuts. But I could tell that there was something different about them, that they had something that I didn't have. And I kept saying, what is it that you have? How is it that your relationships are different from mine? How is it that you're willing to lay down your life the way you do? Where is that joy coming from? And they kept saying Jesus. And I said, yeah, yeah, I I know about him. I know about him. But like, do you have a set of rules I can follow? Because like, I'm a little bit above all that religious stuff. But eventually, what I realized was 99.9% I was right and they were wrong. But what about that 1%? 0.1%. What if I was wrong? What was I losing? And that is all Jesus needed was my 0.1%. And with that 0.1%, I fell in love with Jesus. And I chose to follow him. And my life has never been the same since. As I learned to follow Jesus, there were a lot of things that fell from me very quickly. There was a deeper peace that entered my soul and my life. There is a deeper joy that I learned. I learned God-reliance instead of self-reliance. But you know one thing that didn't fall away like that? One thing that took time, years, and never left was the father wound. Because it was too deep. There's a part of our soul in the Hebrew, it's called the kerev. The kerev is... um, Originally, it means the entrails of animals, but as you go forward, it comes to have a deeper meaning. It means the entrails of your soul, if you will, your inmost being. You see, when God says to you, I'm your father, you know that fact in your head. Most of you have grown up in the church and you have understood that fact in your head, but it hasn't made its way all the way into your care of into your inmost being, the place from which you experience life, the place that gives you security, the place that gives you that identity. And in my care, I'd never received that reality. And one day, I was praying about this, about I, I recognized that there was a hole, there was a vacuum that God had not entered into, God had not healed. And as I was praying, I had this odd image of a diamond ring that had fallen into the sand, And I knew that that diamond ring had been stepped on, it was dented, it was dirty. And I just had a sense in my mind that God wanted to ask me, is that diamond ring worth anything? And I said, well, yeah, it's it's gold, it's diamond, it's fine. But it's dented, well, I'll straighten it. It's dirty, I'll wash it. I just felt very protective about this diamond ring and the value of it. And all of a sudden, in the midst of this prayer moment, I felt God say to me, with very little equivocation, you are my diamond ring. I know you've been stepped on, 
but I will heal you. I know you feel dirty, but I will wash you. You have never lost your value to me. You are my jewel, the jewel in my crown. And that was the moment when the vacuum in my heart, in my kerev, started filling up with this truth. I began to walk in my true identity, not just in my head, but in my soul. Years later, when I wrote my first novel, Pearl in the Sand, uh, they didn't have diamonds at that time, so I wrote that scene as a pearl about Rahab. And do you know, that is uh, one of my books that's been translated into the most languages. And I still, to this day, hear from readers around the world about that scene. And it's kind of vexing because I didn't write it. It was from God. (laughs) But here's the thing. It's a truth that so many of us are not walking in. That is, we still have not learned the full security the full belovedness, the full worth of who we are. In a minute, I'm going to lead us in prayer. And I'm going to lead that prayer with Heavenly Father. I don't know about you, but there are a lot of times when I've used those words as if it's just sort of like an item on my shopping list. Heavenly Father, this. But you know, that's a miracle in your mouth. That's a grace in your lips. That's a power being given voice. That is the claim of God over you. It required a cross. It needed a resurrection. In order for you to say, Heavenly Father, without sinning. In order for you to say, Heavenly Father, and have your Abba say, I am here. I love you. I have never abandoned you. You are my jewel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, Heavenly Father, in all the places where we have been shamed, humiliated, where we have been unloved, where we have a wound, we invite you. Come and father us. Heal and restore us. Come and wash us. And help us to walk in our true identity as your sons and daughters, who are the jewels of your crown. It is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.